Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram by searching for My Peace Corps Story and on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the show and haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do so. I would appreciate a five-star review, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. And speaking of five-star reviews, I'd like to give a special thanks to Milana B 96 They say, insightful, five stars. I have enjoyed listening to your podcast and have learned a great deal. I'm interested in applying to the Peace Corps this coming year, and your podcast has given me an insight into what it's like to be a PCV in countries all over the world. Thank you for this podcast. Milana B96, thank you for the review, and I'm glad you are enjoying the show. This episode, I talk with Brian Cooper, who served in the Republic of Congo from 1996 to 1997. He has so many amazing stories about eating monkey and other bush meat, a 10-day trip down the river to go to his in-service training, and when his friends got arrested for being accused of being spies. And those are only a few of his stories. Without further ado, here is Brian Cooper on the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Brian Cooper, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm good, Tyler. How are you? Doing well. It's my evening right now, uh, but it is early morning for you. Uh, I'm in D.C., and you're down under in Australia. Uh, so it's, I'm glad that our uh, the time difference wasn't too severe so we could uh, do this interview. Yes, well, thanks for making the time. It can be a challenge when uh, you're dispersed like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a challenge that uh, any current or returned Peace Corps volunteer will, will know, especially if they've been on the uh, opposite side from the United States trying to communicate back to their loved ones. But let's get into your Peace Corps service. Start off by letting everybody know a little bit about yourself and where you served in the Peace Corps. All right. Well, originally from Atherton, California, and I got a degree in animal science from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Um, and I served as a freshwater fisheries extension agent in the Republic of the Congo. Okay. And what does that mean? actually mean? Were you building sort of like the ponds for tilapia or what, what sort of yeah, work exactly. was your day-to-day work? That that was it. I lived in a uh, quite a large village, um, although it was pretty basic, no running water or electricity, but I had a motorcycle and I would go around to villages in about a 60 kilometer radius, helping people, farmers build fish ponds and raise tilapia for food. 
And it's probably it's probably a good it's probably a good point uh, uh, place to point out that there are actually two different Congos, and it gets a little bit complicated because Peace Corps has been in both of them. But there's this big Congo, the Belgian Congo, which then became Zaire and is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's where all the big wars are. Um, but right next door is a former French colony called the Republic of Congo, which no one ever really hears about. Um, but it's interesting because they're actually the two closest world capital cities in the world, Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo. So not only are the, the names very similar now, their capitals are just across the uh, Congo River from each other. So it makes it pretty uh, complex and confusing for people who don't know the region. Mm-hmm. And then when you were serving there as a volunteer, uh the name was still Republic of Congo, or did it change? No, it, it used to be part of French Equatorial Africa as a colony, and then in the early 60s, it became independent from France and adopted the name the Republic of the Congo. Okay. And you were serving in a small village. What exactly did that look like? Was this uh, a mud hut, thatch roof, uh, water pump? Paint a picture for us. Um, it was really, I'd describe it as a village in transition. I mean, there, there were probably about 2,000 people. And while there were some of those mud hut and thatched roof dwellings, there were also kind of cinder block dwellings as well. And that's, I lived in a two room cinder block dwelling. Um, but there wasn't any running water and there wasn't any electricity. Um, there are no paved roads. And it was like living in a beach. It was all sand. It was um, it was really quite hard to walk around in the equatorial heat in a in the you know, deep sand all day. But that's where my motorcycle came in handy. Um, it seemed to be some kind of regional center. I think they have kind of like different counties or prefectures, and this was kind of like the seat of one of those prefectures. So it had a bit of a bit of stuff going on, but there wasn't a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And you were serving there in the mid '90s, uh, pre-cell phone. Definitely different from uh, from my service and, and current volunteers, not having that uh, easy connectivity uh, to to the rest of the world, fellow volunteers, and even friends and family back home. What did your downtime look like? Um, I read a lot of books. <laughs> I, I think I was reading like a book a day at the beginning of my service. Um, there's just a lot of nothing to do. Um, it's also <laughs> so hot that, you know, just to even go out and walk around is quite a struggle. And then, you know, it gets dark at like 6 p.m. So you're walking around in the dark after 6. That's a little bit complicated as well. But, um, yeah, you were mentioning the, the cell phone thing and the, the lack of connectivity. We had this <laughs> it brings up a memory. We had this uh, this kind of evacuation communication protocol test where uh, the Peace Corps headquarters would send out a message on Voice of America radio, on the shortwave radio, and we were supposed to hear that message and or be told from some villager that, that you know, there had been a, a command to call the headquarters. And then we were supposed to go to the ham radio operator and then, you know, place a call back to the ham radio operator at the Peace Corps office 
And I mean, it was, it was, it was complete comedy because first of all, it took a few days for me to get the message (laughs) that I'd been told to call back. And then it like, it took a couple of days for me to figure out, you know, where the ham radio was and who had the key to the room where it was locked and knew how to operate it. And then when we got on it, there were like four or five conversations on the same frequency with feedback. So, you know, it would start off like, hello, this is Brian Cooper. Hello, this is Brian Cooper. Hello, this is, and, but with like five other conversations as well like that, it was just insane. You couldn't communicate. <laughs> I, I can't even Im- imagine. And just the fact that Peace Corps would be relaying information to you via the radio. That, well, that's that the is... only way, that's the only way there was. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, which, which kind of came in, uh, became a thing because I'm not sure if we're jumping ahead too far, but you know, there was a civil war and I was evacuated out of Congo and I happened to be in the capital when the war erupted, which is really where all the fighting was, at least in the early days. And <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of information around this, this story, but basically I w I was in the capital for three days with the war going on around me. I was evacuated across the river to Kinshasa uh, which is the capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And then when I was flying out, I got interviewed by BBC World Service and Voice of America Radio. And my interview went to air, and other PCVs that were in Congo hadn't even heard about the war. And apparently <laughs> the segment was introduced as, and here's what Brian Cooper had to say on his way out of the Congo. And people were subsequently told me, and when I heard that, I said, way out where? Where is he going? What's going on? It's like, that's how limited the communication was. In fact, when, when I was pinned down in, this, in, the, in the capital, I was in a house of a guy who worked for the U.S. Embassy, a friend of mine. And we were there for literally three days while the war kind of raged around us. Well, not kind of, it raged <laughs> around us. And it was three days before the Marines could come and get us and take us to the embassy. And like on the third day, the the, guy, the the embassy guy had a cell phone that worked out of the, the U.S. embassy in Kinshasa. So I called my parents, and I woke them up in the middle of the night. And my parents, you know, they're, they're you know modern day humans, kind of you know know what's going on in the world. So I wake them up and I said, "Hey, have you heard what's going on here?" No, nope, they had no idea that there was a war. Peace Corps hadn't called them and said, "Ah, oh, there's a little bit of a thing going on." You know, so I start telling them, you know, well, there's a war going on. I'm hoping I'm going to be in Kinshasa by the end of the day. I'll call you when I get there. And, you know, then the phone goes dead, like the battery goes or the signal went. So that kind of freaked my parents out. And also because Kinshasa is a bit of a hard town. And it's like if you're trying to get to Kinshasa because mm-hmm. where you're coming from is worse, that's a bit of a bit of a bad sign. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I, and I am fine with, uh, jumping around here. I know we, we sort of the, the, the pre-interview, uh, questions and everything. This is, you know, the story that is the, uh, sort of the low point, uh, one of the, your least favorite stories. Uh, we can definitely stick with this right here. Or if you want to jump back and tell one of those, those good memories, uh, favorite Peace Corps memories. Well, I'll, I'll just make a comment on the, on the, the bad versus good memory. And then we can maybe jump back a bit. It's like, for me, it was quite, it was, it was bittersweet 
maybe that's not the right word. It's like I was excited to be able to leave Congo because I had just fallen in love with this Australian girl and it gave me the opportunity to move to Australia. But at the same time, you know, I felt very guilty of, of, of being like this privileged white American when things just get hot, you just get pulled out and other people, you know, the locals just have to grin and bear it. And at the time I thought, I thought it would just blow over the, the civil unrest, but it turned into a really significant civil war. So for like years, um, yeah, it was, it was very worrying because I, I was in the capital. I wasn't in my village when the war started, so I never even got to say goodbye to the people who I worked with and who looked after me. And yeah, so uh, that was that was a bit of a thing for me. Mm-hmm. Probably just like those other volunteers, your community heard about you leaving on the radio. Yeah, they would have. Yep. Wow. So then going back to uh, one of those better moments uh, of Peace Corps. Uh, what's one of those favorite memories, adventures that you uh, had as a volunteer in the Republic of Congo? Well, I've got lots. I don't, I don't know if I was particularly lucky, but the group of people that I went through training with were some of the finest people I've ever met on this planet. And uh, we, we ended up going through training with people who were going to be serving in Cameroon and in Gabon, and in Congo. And we all met in Washington, D.C. for three days. And then we set off to go to Cameroon for two months of French language training. And uh, our flight was late leaving D.C., so we missed our connection in Zurich. And I think Swiss Air only had like one flight a week to Yaoundé, Cameroon, which is the capital. And I don't think Swiss Air was really keen on having, you know, 30, 20-odd-year-old <laughs> Americans hanging around <laughs> Zurich drinking beer for a week. So they, they put us on the plane. I don't, I, I don't even know what airline it was. And we flew to Gatwick in London, Gatwick Airport, because there was an Air Cameroon flight leaving the next day. So someone organized for us to, to stay at this quite nice airport hotel. And, you know, we kind of check into the hotel and then a couple of us wander across the road to the pub and have a few beers. And I go back to the hotel, I go to sleep and mind you, this is, this is after about, you know, 15 hours of traveling from DC to Zurich to UK. And, you know, I, it, I don't know how long I was asleep for. It was probably like 30 or 40 minutes and the phone rings and it's one of my fellow trainees who I don't even really know saying, Brian, we're, uh, the flight's been changed. We're leaving in 30 minutes. You got to get down here. So, you know, I grab all my gear and I wander down. And as I remember, it's a bit convoluted, but then the flight was delayed and then it was postponed and then it was back on again. So, um, but, but eventually it left. And instead of landing in Yonde, it landed in Douala, which is this, this port city, quite large port city in Cameroon. <clears throat> and, uh, we had had no contact with Peace Corps. Like Peace Corps completely lost us. They didn't know where we were. <laughs> then they were expecting us to arrive in Yonde, but we arrived in Douala, which it's described as the armpit of Africa because of the if if you look at the map of Africa, it kind of looks like a person with their right elbow stretched out to the right side, and Douala is where the armpit would be, and it's very hot and very humid. And uh, I remember deplaning. 
and you know, there's no air bridge. It's just kind of you walk down to the tarmac and you walk across the the, the runway essentially. And it was it was like midnight, and I remember it being so hot, like really really hot. And I don't really do well in hot climates, so I'm I'm calculating in my head, you know. 365 days in a year times two years is like 700 something plus four months of training. That's like eight, 900 days. I'm like, there's no way. There's just no way I'm going to be able to handle this. But uh, it turned out that Diwala was a particularly hot place. So uh, so then we spent the night somewhere in Diwala. And uh, the next morning we got on another flight and flew to a town called Nagandere, which is where the Peace Corps training center was. And, you know, we landed in Nagandere and then, you know, through word of mouth, it kind of gets back to the Peace Corps Training Center that, you know, you know, those 30 Peace Corps volunteers that left Washington, D.C. three days ago, they're here. <laughs> so, so then the Peace Corps land cruisers roll up and they're like, hey, we found you guys. But <laughs> and that was I mean, that was just kind of set the tone for Peace Corps administration <laughs> for the whole time, really. Just trying to keep track of their volunteers. Yeah, there's kind of rolling the dice there. You know, it's like for me, there's kind of like this. It's not a double message, but, you know, there's there's the marketing spiel of Peace Corps about it being this, you know, quite, you know, uh, prestigious, professionally run operation. And then at least in my experience, there's the reality of it's kind of like, you know, sit down, put your seatbelt on and hold on. (laughs) We'll see what happens. And so, uh, yeah, which is the way I prefer it, to be honest. Uh, I would, uh, definitely agree with you there. I would rather have, uh, sort of figure it out as you go rather than an overbearing sort of bureaucratic machine telling you what to do and how to do it and where to be. Uh, so it seems like you definitely lucked out there. Yeah, definitely. It was very cool because we, like I said, we went through training in Nagandere, Cameroon, where we lived with host families. My host family was a Jehovah's Witness family, which is kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, it's very cool to live with a host family and experience, you know, <laughs> firsthand the the differences in culture between growing up in Atherton, California and being in a uh, predominantly kind of, I was going to say predominantly Muslim, but I think it was more kind of 50% Muslim, 50% Christian kind of a thing. Because in Cameroon, as you go from the south to the north, in the south, it's you know nearly 100% Christian, and in the north, it's nearly 100% Muslim. And Nagandere is about halfway uh, up in the middle of the country. And so there's this really interesting mix of cultures and people and religions. And it was the first time I'd been to a predominantly Muslim, or maybe not predominantly, but a significantly uh, Muslim area. And yeah, it was, it was fine. I mean, it was, it was a very cool place. Um, and then we also got to go to OEM Gabon for uh, fish culture training, which was similarly fascinating and just, you know, quite wild in, in the sense of, you know, it's a culture that's completely different from your own. You're, you're this Peace Corps trainee. You're kind of in this transition phase of you're not really a Peace Corps volunteer, but, you know, you're now two or three months into your service and you're, you know, you're pretty well able to look after yourself. So, yeah, and you're looking forward to, to getting to your post, which in my case was in Congo. And that was, you know, fantastic as well. And then in Do addition. Do you want to hear? An- 
Yeah, actually, because I'm interested in hearing uh, this one little story that you wrote about, because in addition to this crazy sort of travel adventure that started off your Peace Corps service, uh, you gave me a a few lines about this uh, 10-day trip with a motorized dugout canoe with other volunteers, and then uh, there's all these other the things that you sort of uh, talk about. I want to I want to hear more about that because that sounds like an amazing adventure. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, so my village Bunji was on the tributary of the Congo River called the Alima River, and then so the Congo River, more or less, where where we were, runs north to south, and then there's these lateral branches uh, of tributaries, quite large rivers. Um, and my friend Mark, who was a Peace Corps volunteer in a, in a village, not the next village along, but maybe two or 250 kilometers away, he also lived on a tributary of the Congo River. And he got it in his head that, um, see, there were these these guys who would, you know, it's, they, had, they had this large dugout canoe, like maybe it was you know, 50 feet long. And it had an outboard motor and they would, I think they were buying and selling goods. So like where the, where that river hit the Conga river, there's quite a, a large town. So you could get, you know, lanterns and petrol and candles and rice or whatever. And I think they would buy a bunch of stuff in that town and then motor upstream to the small villages and kind of sell it or, or trade it for agricultural goods. So anyways, Mark had this idea that, oh, we have this in-service training in the capital coming up. We could actually all ride our motorcycles to his village, jump on this dugout canoe, and motor down to the Congo River, and then, you know, we could easily just jump on a barge and uh, go down the Congo River to the capital. Wouldn't that be a lot of fun? And so he pitched it to me, and I said, yeah, definitely. That sounds good to me. And we had two other volunteers join us, a, a girl named Laura from Hawaii, and a guy named Andy from, I think he was from Pennsylvania or somewhere back east. And, uh, yeah, so we, we just kind of bit the bullet, rode over to Mark's village. And the next morning, the, the, you know, the, the merchant dugout canoe vessel was leaving and we jumped in. We, we actually, we bought these chairs. These can, this canoe was so big that you could sit two chairs side by side it kind of had like two aisles like in a small airplane so you know we're we set off down this this river and we pull in this village at night just to sleep but a place that there's no roads to get to it and they they don't see a lot of white people and they're kind of like you know what's your deal and you know you've got four 20-odd-year-old Americans, you know, <clears throat> completely disheveled because they've been on the river in the equatorial sun all day. And we're just like, yeah, we're just going to Brazzaville. And they're like, oh, yeah, as if it's like the most normal thing in the world. And uh, what this this is a funny story. This guy, Andy, he might hate me saying this, but he went to the University of Santa Cruz. And before he joined Peace Corps, he was a vegetarian. And uh, he got posted to this village that was out in the middle of nowhere and had nothing. Like, I, it, it didn't even have a general store. It had, like, nothing. And uh, he, he went from being a vegetarian to literally eating monkeys in about a three-month period because there wasn't <laughs> enough food in his village to sustain him. And so this first night that we rolled into this 
this uh, town on the or village on the on the river, this uh, <laughs> this this little kid is uh, walking through the village with a monkey. And in in Congolese culture, there's this cultural uh, phenomena called petit. So any any kid, you call them petit, and they have to kind of come and do what you say. So Andy's kind of, you know, well integrated himself into this cultural phenomenon. He sees this kid carrying this monkey and he yells out to him, you know, hey, Petit. Now, we've been in this village for like 10 minutes. He's like, Petit, bring me the monkey. You know, and then, you know, it's on. I can't remember if we actually bought the monkey in the end, but um, they did cook it for dinner for us. And uh, we had a bit of a soiree that night with the, the local palm wine, as I recall. Well, they uh, they had the same uh, thing with petites in Burkina Faso where I served, and palm wine as well. They also had monkey, but that's monkey is one of the the few things that I have not tried. I'll eat almost anything, but I have a a mild aversion to the idea of eating a monkey. So, what what does what does monkey taste like? Well, it's interesting because I've got another monkey story because I didn't actually eat the monkey that night because I know what you're talking about. Because in in Oyem Gabon, when I, I lived with my host family there during fish culture training, I came home one day and the house stunk. Like it smelled really, really bad. And I go in the house and I go into my room and the smell gets worse. And I'm going, oh, Jesus, did I leave like some fish samples in my backpack or something? And now they're, you know, rotting. Like it was really, really foul. And I, I couldn't find the source of the smell. And then, it, you know, it comes time for dinner and we sit down at this, this big table and uh, they, they put this big vat on the table. And I'm like, all right, what's for dinner? And they're like, monkey. And I'm like, oh, far out. And, uh, you know, because I'm clearly I'm an idiot american who knows nothing they're like it's a small animal with a tail that jumps through the trees i'm like yeah 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 i know the monkey and then i'm gone you know i don't want to offend these people by like refusing their food and they're kind of like all waiting for me to take the first bit of monkey from the pot as the you know honored guest in the house so i take my fork and i'm like prodding around for the smallest piece of monkey i can find and I, I find this little piece and I, I'm sliding my fork in it and I'm like, oh, Jesus, I can tell by the way the the resistance of the tissue on the tines of my fork that it's like it's the monkey liver. <laughs> right. And so I pull out this piece of monkey liver I'm, and everyone's looking at me and I'm going oh, far out. So I take my knife and I cut like the smallest bit, put it in my mouth and yeah, it was foul. I said, sorry, I, 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 I'm not, I can't eat this monkey. And then, you know, they were cool with that. I think they were appreciative that I at least tried it. But this, oh, the origin of this foul smell was the way they prepare monkey and all mammals really in, in Gabon is, it's a fairly simple recipe. It's build a fire and then put animal on the fire. You know, not skinned, not dehaired, not even gutted. So that smell was the burning monkey hair, and the fire was just outside my bedroom window. So all the the monkey hair smoke was flowing through my window and throughout the house. That said, um, Andy seemed to to like monkey, all right. <laughs> so maybe it's an acquired taste. 
maybe it is, and I I apologize for anybody that was attempting to eat while listening to this episode. Uh, but I, I definitely thank you for uh, the the two monkey stories. <laughs> right. Um, so continuing with the uh, actually, I need I need to mention that Mark uh, is a very good acoustic guitar player and vocalist. And uh, we made up this song the first night in that village on the first day of the dugout canoe ride. And the chorus was Andy eats monkey feats. And so when it came time to, to have dinner, they offered Andy the monkey paw or the monkey foot. And, <laughs> and Andy was like, no, 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 thanks. I, I don't habitually eat the monkey foot. And they're like, but you were singing that song. So it was, it was all a bit of comedy. But uh, carrying on, we we had two more similar nights, as I remember it, on the dugout canoe ride. And then we got to this town on the Congo River called Musaka, which is actually an island because of the the currents of the tributaries and the Congo River and the the way the the river changes with the floods and the the dry season. And uh, we stayed at this kind of Catholic mission place and we were just waiting for a barge to come down and dock at Mosaka and then we would get on it and float down to Brazzaville and you know there's no kind of barge schedule you just kind of wait so we were in this town for like the better part of a week and there's not a lot to do and one night at sunset Mark and Andy get the idea that they're going to climb this this I think it was a radio repeater station tower thing and take photographs of the sunset. So Laura and I, as I recall, stayed at the bar and had a beer and Mark and Andy goes, you know, climbing up this, I don't know, it would have been maybe 50 or 75 meter tall radio repeater station thing. And yeah, we can see them up there and then they start climbing down and we notice like all the, the, the young kids start running over to where, that the tower is. And, you know, at first I was like, Oh, well, you know, they just want to see the white guys and whatever. And then it, it time kind of kicked on and Laura said, I'm going to go see what's happened. And so then <laughs> you know, Laura doesn't come back. So then I go, oh, all right, no, I'll, something might be up. So I wander over there. Mark and Andy have been arrested as spies <laughs> because <laughs> they've been photographing, you know, the Conga river at nighttime. It's just, it was just absurd. And they were, and you'll have to talk to Mark and Andy to get the, the interrogation story. But it was like, uh, you know, they wanted to confiscate their cameras. And Mark and Andy were like, no, you're not taking our cameras. <laughs> it was like, they, I think they got put in a kind of jail cell. Or Andy was like, no, I'm not going in there. I called the U.S. Embassy. Was, then we had to get the, the priest involved to, to get him out. And that was, it all turned out all right in the end. But um, eventually a barge did show up. And uh, we jumped on that and this barge, oh my God, it was going to be a hard trip because it was just like a barge and every square inch of the barge was covered with people. It's like you had a place to sit and that's it. And it's like a three day journey floating down the Conga River. And we're about an hour into the trip and this kind of speedboaty thing comes headed straight towards us like off the off the port side and it's coming at a right angle to us and it's it's not really slowing down 
And as I remember, we were kind of sitting near the pilot station on the barge, and this this boat stuck it, I don't know, at the front, the, the bowsprit thing on the little motorboat, slams right into the cockpit of, of the pilot station on this barge. And we're just going, what's going on here? And this, this French guy pokes his head up out of the motorboat, and he's like, uh, my motor is a bit stuffed. Can you give me a tow down to Brazzaville? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure, fine. And so then, you know, th- there's this quite luxurious, in our terms, you know, speedboat right next to us. And we kind of invited ourselves onto his boat. So at least we had a place to kind of, we could lay down and it was, it was quite first class. So that was, that was kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, you never know what's going to happen. I do remember at night because like we would just, you wouldn't keep going at night. The boat would pull in somewhere or there's some islands or sandbar and everyone would get off the, the, the boats so that it could like sleep laying down on the ground or whatever. But the mosquitoes were so thick that we, we had, I'm not sure if they probably haven't Burkina Faso, but the cassava or manioc root mm-hmm. that they make into this kind of uh, putty. We had to use that as earplugs so that we could sleep because the, the din of the mosquitoes buzzing was, was so ferocious. You wouldn't have been able to sleep. All, all the different things that just happened in, in that story is, I mean, sort of an iconic Peace Corps travel story that everybody kind of has one, but they're all equally un- unique and amazing. And so, so you made it to, you're headed to IST, in-service training? That's right, yeah. So then, yeah, so we arrived at, at the Brazzaville port and kind of, you know, got off the, the boat, the barge, and wandered into town, wandered into the Peace Corps office thing, and we weren't supposed to be traveling like this and peace corps you know the marketing pitch at least in service was oh you can't ride your motorcycles outside your region and you have to travel by this mode of transportation and blah 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 and you know we just completely threw all the rules out the window so you know we get there and it was a new country director that we hadn't even met like when we swore in the previous country director did the swearing in and this new guy was there and he was kind of introducing himself and he's like yeah so how was your trip down we're like yeah no problem yeah, you know, easy. No just, just normal. Got on a bus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, well, actually, we didn't even have buses. Like, we, we, the way that we would travel is by manioc truck. We called it the the big lorries that would take agricultural products from the interior to the capital, and then you know, manufactured goods from the capital back to the interior. And the 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 goods had priority over the people so they load the the trucks up with all the goods and then we would ride on top mm-hmm. so it was it was a bit difficult to travel i, th- I can't remember I, but it, it would i was my village i think was about 350 kilometers north of the capital but it took like 10 or 12 hours to get there <laughs> yeah it wasn't a lot of fun but anyway so you you made it to IST, then you continue on your service, then you get pulled. Is there pulled out? Is there anything else during your service? Any stories that uh, you want to share before we sort of move on to the the things you miss about Peace Corps? You learned. I mean, I'm I've been I'm just a- asking and prodding now because I've enjoyed your stories so far. I just don't want to stop listening to them. So I'm I'm I'm, f- I'm fishing for other other good ones from you. 
Well, I do, I do have one other one. It's kind of like, the, in a way, it's how I came to find myself in Australia. But um, basically, one day, I, w- I was just sitting on my porch in my village, and uh, I hear this motorcycle. And you can tell who, like, there are, the only people with motorcycles are Peace Corps volunteers. And you can tell by the unique sound of each motorcycle who it is. And I said, oh, that sounds like Mark. And then you get really excited because, you know, you go weeks or months without seeing anyone that you really know. And then when you see someone you know and you like them and and you can suddenly have someone to talk to and who can relate to you, it's, it's quite exciting. So Mark rolls into town, into my village, and he says, uh, you know, I've had bronchitis for a month. It's not going away. I need to go to the capital to get um, – you know, some medical attention, but you know, I'm not going to take the 12 hour manioc truck ride. I think we should go through the interior on our motorcycles. And I was like, yeah, all right, let's do that. So, uh, in, in Congo, we called it renegade when you would take an unauthorized trip on your motorcycle. So Mark and I, uh, we drove like literally through the interior of Congo on kind of, uh, I don't know if they're animal trails or hunting trails or both, but they weren't roads. We were literally like in the Congo equivalent of the outback cruising through the Congo with, you know, a jerry can of extra petrol for our motorcycles and uh, took two or three days to get down to the capital. And that's where I met this Australian girl named Colleen. And I was like, hey, how's it going? You know, and uh, we hit it off. And I took her back to my village for a few weeks. And then we went on holidays to Kenya doing a camping safari. And we went over to Zanzibar and was having a fantastic time. But then I had to go back to Congo and she had to go back to Australia. So it was kind of like this really difficult parting of the ways. And I get back to Congo. And in the week before, see, there were, there were presidential elections coming up. And Congo has an interesting past because after it gained its independence, it was supported by the Soviet Union because the other Congo, Zaire, was supported by the Americans. And so Congo had this this president called uh, Dennis Sassou, and he was the only president for the, as I understand it or remember, for the entire existence of the Republic of the Congo until the Berlin Wall fell in like '98 or. Was it no, 88, 89, I think. And so the, all the funding from, from the Soviet Union dried up. And in order to get funding from the Americans, they had introduced kind of democratic free and fair elections. And so uh, Sasu lost the election, and you got this guy named Lesuba who became president. So Sasu went back to his home village to kind of bide his time. And so this is uh, June 1997. Elections were supposed to take place in late June. And so they were having this kind of uh, political campaign and rallies. And I I can't remember the exact details, but Sasu's entourage was going through a town and they got like shot at, like ambushed. And they returned fire or maybe when they drove back down, they, they came in all guns blazing. A couple of people died. So things were getting kind of hot. And at this point, Sasu is back at his Brazzaville compound. And as, as I remember, the 
the president of, of Congo passed some decree limiting the number of people that a person could have in their private militia. And all the ex-heavyweights, political heavyweights like Sasu and the mayor of Brazzaville and the president of Brazzaville, they all had their own private militias, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And then then so what happened was the the president sent the Congolese army to go arrest the people who were accused of shooting some of the other people. Some of Sasu's people were, were, were going to be arrested. So. The, the Congolese army surrounds, surrounds Sasu's compound and says, you know, hand over this guy and that guy. And that would have been all fine, except it appears that Sasu's militia was kind of better armed and better trained than the Congolese army. So they took the fight to the army and basically overran them and ended up, you know, mounting a coup and taking over the whole country. So... I had flown back from Kenya, uh, and I was I was in the capital waiting transport back to my village, and this whole thing flares up. And I can remember I was having lunch at this place called the Americas Club, which is kind of like an expat community kind of country club thing. And I hear a few gunshots, and I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. So just as a precaution, I, I walked back to the house where I was staying where – the guy was like number three or four person at the U.S. Embassy. And uh, then the war just intensified and intensified. And the, the, my friend arrived home and he's like, Jesus Christ. And he only had to travel about a kilometer in his four-wheel drive. And he's like, I was checked three times, told to get out of my car. And he's in a car with diplomatic plates. And it was all very serious. And so then, um, yeah, we were in that house for three days with the war going around on around us and then the the marines come and get us in the uh in the ambassador's armored limousine and this is this is another kind of crazy story we there was there was the armored limousine and then two pickup trucks as i remember it kind of in a convoy and the marines were going out to pick up certain people so they came to get me and my friend and then we went to this five-star hotel um called i think at the time it was called the meridian to get some other expats and my friend wanted the the driver to go buy cigarettes while he was at the meridian because he had run out of cigarettes and so he gives him this money and you know they get the other expats and the, the chauffeur gets back in the car and my friend's like where are my cigarettes he's like oh no no i know another place down the road these are too expensive like, you know, so even in the middle of the Civil War, people are trying to get good deals on cigarettes. It just made no <laughs> sense. And so, so and then my friend was like, you know, I don't care. Get out of the car. Go buy them. I don't care how much they cost. So then we get to the embassy, and it's all a bit chaotic. And it's, it's just a small embassy. I mean, I don't know how many staff they would have. Not more than 20. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of wandering around in this kind of marine sergeant colonel something comes up to me and he says are you peace corps i said yeah he said do you want to be evacuated i'm like yeah and he says do you want to fly to kinshasa tonight and i said well if there's a plane going to kinshasa tonight i would very much like to be on it he said okay no worries so then darkness falls and we get back in the limousine and there's a a congolese army kind of you know soviet era jeep thing 
kind of open top thing with a bunch of soldiers with kind of machine guns in it, giving us an escort to the, uh, to the airport. And there were actually two limousines. Now that I remember one, we were in the, the second one and, uh, we're cruising down the road to the airport and there appears to be this checkpoint, except the people, the people manning the checkpoint aren't in military, uh, you know, uniforms. So we start thinking, well, not me, but the, both the chauffeurs who were Marines start talking to each other saying, look, we might have an issue here. Uh, get prepared to execute like a Jayhawk 26 maneuver, which is like turn around and get out of there quickly. But as it turns out, it was actually the Congolese military manning the checkpoint. They had just taken off their uniforms for some reason. Um, so we got through that. We get to the airport and there's this kind of nine or 10 seater little prop plane owned by some Belgian company that had been kind of hired by the embassy to ferry people, Americans out of Brazzaville over to Kinshasa all day. So it was just doing runs all day. And so the, the plane was in the air and this, and the Marine chauffeur says to me, all right, yeah, this plane's going to land. Just get out of the car. It should be no problem. You know, good luck. And I'm like, no, man, I am not getting out of this car until that plane is on the ground. You know, because I could just see this, you know, Brian gets out of the car, car drives away, plane flies away. Now Brian's at the airport in the middle of the Civil War. No, <laughs> no way. So I forced him to stay. And then the, the plane landed and, uh, and it was still crazy. We go through the airport and there's like some official there and he's wanting us to fill out emigration forms. You know, it's just like nuts. It's like there's a war going on. No one's ever going to find these document cards it's just complete madness and then i think he didn't have enough of them for the number of people so then he's just kind of writing down on binder paper the details of people fleeing it was just nuts so uh so then we got on the the, the little airplane flew across to kinshasa got met by the u.s embassy they kind of took our passports and dealt with customs and immigration at kinshasa airport which is a notorious kind of bad airport to fly into at least it was in the 90s um and uh so we <laughs> then they the, we went to the embassy did a bit of paperwork and they booked me into the intercontinental hotel which is a five-star hotel in kinshasa and uh, another peace corps volunteer who had been evacuated out earlier in the day was there and so we went downstairs and had pizza and margaritas so i went from like being in the middle of the civil war to being in a five-star hotel eating pizza and having margaritas in the span of like 12 hours, which is kind of crazy. And then the next morning, um, the, the embassy had said, yeah, you know, be down in the lobby at nine o'clock and we'll, we'll sort out what we'll do next. And the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations at the time, Bill Richardson, happened to be in town in Kinshasa because he was uh, doing some not reconnaissance, but checking up on some something to do in the east of the country with the Hutus and the Tutsis and the civil war that was going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Anyways, he was there on what they called Air Force Two. I don't think it really is Air Force Two, but it was, you know, a proper, you know, big American jet aircraft with the presidential seal and it says United States of America on it. And the embassy official said, here you go. You're booked on Air Force Two to fly back to Andrews Air Force Base with Bill Richardson this afternoon. I'm like, yeah, okay, that'll work. So then, uh, 
So then we, we go to the airport and that's when BBC and VOA interviewed me and put my interview out over the, the shortwave radio for everyone back in Congo to hear while I got on Air Force Two, which actually it was Air Force One when uh, Kennedy was president. And it's the plane that flew Kennedy's body from Dallas back to Andrews Air Force Base in. And so it was not poetic, but it was some kind of somehow symbolic that I was being evacuated out of Congo, out of Peace Corps, which was started by Kennedy in the plane that he had his last trip in. And I was flying back to the same Air Force Base. So that was kind of surreal. Uh, surreal indeed. And and that that was it. That was the end of your Peace Corps service. Yeah. And that and the crazy part was. You know, and then I, I had a few days in, in Washington, D.C., kind of debriefing and medical checks and that. But it took a week or more for for people to get out of Congo. So I was back at my parents' place, you know, <laughs> sleeping in a proper bed. Well, all my mates from Peace Corps were still kind of in a precarious situation. And check this out. This girl, Laura, from Hawaii, she had the misfortune of leaving her village on the morning that the civil war started in the capital. So by the time she got to the capital, the war was like really, really hot and the city was shut down. And by chance, she ran into someone that she knew, a local Congolese guy. And he was from the ethnic group of the, of Sasu, the, the coup d'etat mounter. And because it's all who, you know, they, they called the French embassy. The French embassy sent a tank over and got her and drove her to the U.S. embassy. And and then they closed down Peace Corps and they flew out. And that, that was that was the end of Peace Corps Congo. Wow. Well, what do you miss about Peace Corps service? I mean, you had all these crazy adventures and stories, but overall... What do you miss from your time in the Republic of Congo? Um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's just, as you said, the crazy stories, the crazy things that happen, but also in tandem with the camaraderie of, of your fellow Peace Corps volunteers. It's like these, these people I was with, they, like, some of them are a bit nuts, in, but all of them are very salt-of-the-earth people, very down-to-earth. And, you know, they'd always have your back. They'd never screw you over. And they're just, you know, intelligent, funny, and just, you know, can put up with a lot of crap and just kind of persevere and muddle through. And, you know, you look back on it and it's just the crazy, crazy times that we had with each other. And, you know, we, we still get together, even though I live in Australia, you know, with the advent of Facebook and stuff, I'm still in communication with a number of them. And every couple of years I make it back to the United States and we have a bit of a reunion. So we're going to have a small one in Helena, Montana at the end of June, which uh, I'm going back for. So that should be very, very good. Well, I've definitely enjoyed, enjoyed hearing all your crazy stories. Uh, but before I, I let you go and we close out this interview, I, I do have to ask, you, you went to Australia after meeting that Australian girl uh, what, ha what happened there? Well, I will answer that, but I do have one more thing to share if we have time. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, I actually went back to my village 
in June 2016. Oh. Yeah, and, and this and is after this is after having no contact with anyone in the village because they they don't have internet. They don't have. So they tw- didn't have internet. Twenty twenty years later, you just show up. Yeah, unannounced. How did that go? It was crazy. It was insane because uh, a number of things happened. But um, one of the Peace Corps volunteers I served with, she has become a diplomat, and she uh, had worked previously with the current U.S. ambassador to Congo. So through Facebook, you know, she's, you know, I arrived in, in, in the capital and I messaged her and said, yeah, I'm, I've landed in Brazil. She's like, oh, geez, you know, I forgot to, uh, to set things up with the ambassador. Do you want to have drinks with her this afternoon? And I'm like, yeah, sure, if it's possible. So then like, you know, within a couple hours of being in Brazzaville, I'm having drinks with the U.S. ambassador on the banks of the Congo River. And she herself used to be a, a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, I believe in the other Congo. So, you know, a number of full circle kind of things happening. Um, and you know, a lot has changed in Congo An immense amount has changed. Uh, there are now buses and a paved road all the way to my village and beyond. I rolled in there and it's, it, the change has been immense. They've got running water, they've got electricity, They've got satellite TV. They've got soft serve ice cream, taxis. You know, there's a butcher, there's a bakery, um, there's a hospital, and they seem to be doing really, really well. And um, yeah, I met up. See, I think that the life expectancy of males in the Congo, I think, is only about 55 years old. And most of the villagers that I worked with, the 20 years previously would have been in their twenties. So they're kind of getting to be old guys by Congolese standards. And a lot of them had left the village and gone to the capital to work. So that was a little bit bittersweet, but there was one farmer that I was able to reconnect with and we hit it off. Like not a day had passed. And, you know, I, I was only able to be in my village for three nights and it was just not long enough. So I, I invited the farmer, his name's Maurice, back to uh, Brazzaville, and the ambassador actually put together a bit of a a party for us. And one of the trainers, Congolese trainers, he's, he taught me French in Nagandere, Cameroon. He lived in the, the port city of Pointe Noire, which is kind of like an oil city in Congo. He flew in just for the night to come to the party. And yeah, it was just, it was an amazing experience. I can only imagine. I haven't been back since since leaving, and I'm I'm hoping to go back in the next few years. But twenty years later, and and having the opportunity to to go back, visit your village, see those changes, and reconnect with you know uh, the farmer and your your language teacher, the the guy who taught you French. I mean, that is that is unbelievable. Yeah, it was it was very cool because. You know, I was in the capital when the war erupted, so I never got to say goodbye to anyone in my village, which I felt very guilty about for a long time. That you know, I was this privileged American who just left, and then, you know, they had to suffer through it. So, but they were all fine. They, they didn't suffer any major dramas for during the war. So that was a relief to find out. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, but the Australian girl that didn't work out in the end. Um, <laughs> oh man, what a what uh, a what a what a sour note to end on, man. Well, yeah, but I I, I fell in love with Melbourne, so I, yeah, true, uh, I figured true. out a way to stay, and I've been here ever since. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, Melbourne's quite a nice little town, really. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, quite happy here. Well. Thank you very much for taking uh, time out of uh, your morning uh, to to wake up and share your amazing stories with me. I definitely think people who are listening are are going to enjoy them. I mean, I know I could continue to listen to them because they they remind me a lot of my service uh, serving in sub-Saharan Africa and the you know the the camaraderie and the zany stories that come out of just putting yourself out there and being. Uh, willing uh to to jump in a canoe and on top of a truck and see where it goes yep well i guess i mean that that would be my message for anyone listening is considering joining the peace corps just do it it's it's (laughs) it may not be the toughest job you'll ever love but you'll have the best time of your life Mm -hmm. most definitely well brian uh Thank you very much uh, again for, for coming on the My Peace Corps Story podcast and sharing a little bit of your Peace Corps story. No worries. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe so you get a new episode every single week. If you want to hear my Peace Corps story, be sure to check out my book, Service Disrupted, available on Amazon. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?